Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. As always, I never leave. Today's guest is a Book Shambles regular. It's someone who filled in for Josie on a number of occasions when she was on maternity leave. She's been on Book Shambles as a guest talking about her own books in the past. She's frequently appeared in live events with us like Nine Lessons uh, and Sea Shambles, the online Albert Hall edition. It is the stand-up classicist Natalie Haynes. She'll be talking to Robin and Josie in a minute about her new book, Pandora's Jar, which, if you are listening to this podcast on the day it came out, is out today. So make sure you go and get yourself a copy of that from wherever it is you get your books, be it an independent bookshop, a library, or other places. Before we get to Robin and Josie and Natalie, a reminder, of course, that there are no live events anymore. And so Patreon is what keeps us going at the Cosmic Shambles Network. That goes, obviously, for myself producing the shows and Robin and Josie have got no live work anymore and all the other people behind the scenes. Here, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show and you'll get extended editions of each and every episode of Book Shambles and Science Book Shambles, which is the second episode of Book Shambles slash Science Shambles that comes out each week on this feed and the Science Shambles feed. This week's episode is with Dr. Kat Arnie talking to Robin and Josie about her book Rebel Cell, which is about the evolution and our understanding of cancer. There's also a bit of chat about chimney sweeps and how that relates. So make sure you download and listen to that if you've not already. A few very big announcements coming up from the Shambles team in the next week or so. So make sure you are following us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or signed up to our mailing list. Or if you are a Patreon supporter, uh, you'll find out the news a little bit earlier. So another incentive to sign up. Enough of all of that now. Here is Robin and Josie and the author of the now available Pandora's Jar, Natalie Haynes. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. We have uh, a a very regular Book Shambles guest and a guest on loads of other uh, shambles-based things as well, who is Natalie Haynes, who has uh, a book out. She writes with almost the speed of AC Grayling. Sometimes I (laughs) did Pandora's Jar. I'm holding it up now for anyone who's seeing a brief clip of this Pandora's Jar, which is uh, we're, we're talking on the day of the launch and it comes out tomorrow, which means it is out now because uh, in the way the universe works, the way the recordings work, um, you are listening to the past. You're always listening to the past. That's even if you're standing with someone now talking to them, you're still listening to the past. It's new, well, that, That's what I do in Infinite Monkey Cage. This isn't it. This is time to talk about the classics. So, Natalie. Uh, hey, Josie as well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm fine. And again, for those who can't see, Josie has got a new uh, app or whatever it's called, which is allowing it to have all manner of backgrounds. Uh, So though you can't see it, she's currently in space. (laughs) A a beautiful image of space where they imagine future rockets to merely look like bollards. I'm not entirely sure whether that's someone who's taken the kind of you've got a kind of bollard effect there and a used tyre as well. 
It's a yeah. very odd space background. Yeah. I like it. Um, so, all right, Natalie, I want to start off with this. Pandora's Jar is fantastic. I, uh, As I said to you earlier, I, I've, I've, I've just read it, and it is filled as it's, – it's a lovely journey through the classics, but also with Beyonce and Mike Hammer and Donna Summer uh, accompanying us on some of that journey as well. Um, and before we get to that, though, I want to – what was the point that because now you're a stand-up classicist and you know that radio four show is is tremendously successful and i see the 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 sweat that goes into you condensing oh my god uh, the enormity <laughs> of a cannon into 28 minutes and 12 seconds whatever it might be when was the transition for you from being a stand-up comedian to moving into kind of classics because really because i started out as a classicist, which is sort of the wrong way around, but I did triple classics A-levels. Um, so before I did my very first gig, which was as an undergraduate, um, I was already doing a classics degree. So classics does just about come first for me um, by, by a couple of years. And then obviously, as you know, because I met you when I was still a student, um, I was doing stand-up in every kind of waking spare minute when I wasn't trying to plow my way through Aristotle or something else I didn't understand. Um, and uh and stand up became my kind of love for about a decade and i still really struggle to to work out what my kind of proper job is this is a really strange moment for me publishing pandora because this is the sixth book i've written and i wrote five edinburgh shows so i did edinburgh 2002 three four five six and so this is the one where i have to kind of go wait <laughs> maybe i've been doing this for longer that Maybe I've made more, and it is genuinely really difficult for me because I still feel like I live somewhere in between um, in this kind of liminal state of being kind of one foot still just just coming, to, you know, it's, it's just still over the threshold in stand-up. The rest of me has walked out the building and then I never quite feel at home being a novelist or in this case a, a non-fiction writer. So, yeah, I don't ever really feel like I've got my job title sorted that's why i've kind of gone with stand-up classicist because it, you kind of go well at least there's, there's just one of me that's fine yeah was I've... there a point sorry josie you can... no no i was just gonna say i think it's very very good to create your own unique categorization yeah i think so too i think it's a lot easier than trying to fit into the boxes other people kind of need you to fit into because stand-up yeah. for me at least and i'm certain this must have been true for you too josie um was full of people going well, what kind of lady comedian are you? Yeah. Oh, God. And people are going, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're doing it wrong. I'm like, no, I'm just doing it like this. It's yeah. fine. I know. And it was just such an effort having to kind of keep saying, no, actually, it's okay to, uh, but, uh, and so I quite like that now the pressure is off me. I don't have to be funny. It's just nice that I am um, when I am. Um, then that, it just makes it, I think I'm funnier now, actually, than I was then. Um. <laughs> Now, uh, Pandora's jar is uh, well. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a quote from uh, Hesiod in, in, your, in your first chapter, which is about uh, Pandora, where yes. uh, he says, you know, where he talks about this whole deadly race of women, Excellent. and it does feel that looking. Come on, at, well, going through this book, so many of of these protagonists is uh, um, they are turned into, and I don't know how true it, but the two. Th things which are as, as you say with, with with pandora it becomes like an eve narrative ah yes. look what happens a woman comes down and ruins everything for everyone awful and the hopes left in the bottom we don't even know if we can. um it, it, the 
there is and we see this now i mean we, the other day we were talking uh to laura bates about her new book um, you know yeah. uh, 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 men who hate women and that sense that the fear of women do two things they either uh arouse a man which is despicable uh <laughs> or they are cleverer than a man that is which is uh, even uh, worse which is, is despicable is. as as well would you say that is the way that many of these narratives what they've been turned into which is a, the, the as a as you mentioned in the book you know women as a separate species as yeah. as an enemy through their their power yeah i mean what's interesting is seeing what happens through time to these women because for the greeks even hesiod who is quite misogynistic he probably likes brothers a bit less than he likes women because he really dislikes his his feckless brother and writes the whole works and days as a sort of rebuke to him um but yes generally even hesiod who isn't mad for women brackets or brothers close brackets um he can still see that pandora's role in myth is to be the the creator of women before pandora there aren't any women after pandora women thanks very much um men are descended from erichthonius he's made of clay uh women are descended from clay um and so you know we've done all right thanks very much two different species everything's all just all races maybe isn't it <laughs> when we're made out of clay adam <laughs> which one of us let's just call him it oh no it's fine um so it he still sees us as um as kind of coexisting in this plane. And although he's a bit regretful of the golden times before women and indeed before fire, because the two come uh, close on top of one another to the human race as, uh, as gifts or penalties, depending on your translation of the Greek, um, then I think just about to accept that Pandora's role for him and, and for time coming is to be an agent of, you know, Pandora is sent by Zeus as a, a penalty perhaps or a requirement in exchange for the fact that we get fire we get one thing which changes our world fire which means that we can cook it changes everything um but we therefore also get another thing which is pandora which is women um and as origin stories go of course it is um you know only about as mad as any other um but for him the idea of pandora is this um is this a woman this a figure um and and we're all living now in the world that we do because Prometheus stole fire and because you sent Pandora and that is just how it is and then it's so interesting that her story gets distorted through Christianity really that she if you look at ancient representations of Pandora she's always shown being created if you look at more modern representations of Pandora and by more modern I mean once Christianity exists so I'm still you know <laughs> allowing quite a long time in that frame shown in an act of destruction in the act of opening the box which she does doesn't even have in Greek. Um, so the all world, sometimes in Greek they're terrible, sometimes they are nice. Sometimes she opens the box, sometimes her husband opens the box. You'll be glad to. We've got rid of all that nuance and made it bad woman does bad thing. Um, and so, you know, it changes, but it changes, I think, because of the um, pressures of, of trying to fit Pandora into a more Old Testament narrative to make her into Eve as a painting. Um, is it by Jean Cousin, I think, uh, called Eva Prima Pandora. So specifically merging the two characters of Eve and Pandora into one, one bad woman to destroy us all. But it, it is fascinating, or at least it was fascinating to me writing this book to look at how these these women who have who had always been kind of presented to me as villainous um, 
always and it, you know at least to my mind very rarely villains at all you know so Clytemnestra is always presented to us as the terrible terrible wife the, the wife who waits for her husband to come home has an affair with his great enemy and the axe or sometimes a sword and it's like okay well that is quite I mean you know I'm no expert on the subject of marriage but that is quite a bad wife I'm prepared to accept that and then you realize you know all the way through the Aeschylus play Agamemnon she is she's taking Agamemnon had killed her daughter and she specifically asked the question that's what's so interesting I think is that these questions were being asked in the ancient world and then they get lost for quite a long time because we're so busy kind of simplifying myths through art and through music and through um, retellings we tend to take them away from this nuance and forget that it's there I'm not saying that there isn't plenty there's plenty don't worry there's enough to go around but then we overlay a more modern misogyny and the, and we lose track of the interestingness of the story version. Clytemnestra specifically says to the chorus of old Argive men who are angry with her for killing Agamemnon, she says, how come you care about him but you didn't care about our daughter, about her daughter, about Iphigenia who's sacrificed by Agamemnon to get a fair winter sail to Troy because that's the opening choral ode of the whole play. They talk about Iphigenia being sacrificed like an animal. They use the language, it's like a sack news, it's her name. It's like they can't bear to think about actual her. Whereas for Clytemnestra, that name is burned into her soul. She only ever thinks about Iphigenia. And once you think about her as a mother taking revenge, rather than as a wife having an affair and punishing her husband, it, it just changes who, who she is, I think, and, and how it frames her. And there have been plenty of versions from Ovid. I mean, this has been going on since, since Roman times to reframe her as a sort of bad housewife. Ovid's doing it as a joke, um, but, uh, but plenty of people have chosen to do it in a sort of slightly less jokey way. Seneca, for example, um, who is hard to read on jokes, even though he's a, a capable satirist at times. It's like, dude, you can't possibly be aiming for it. No, okay, well, hmm. um, but. <laughs> Um, we get this kind of version of Clytemnestra. She becomes this sort of neurotic housewife who's determined to, to get away with having an affair or who's panicking that she's going to be caught out for having an affair. But in Aeschylus, in, in the earliest sort of proper version that we have, of course, we see her in Homer as well, or at least we hear about her a great deal in Homer. Um, but the first dramatised version of her we have, she is, a, she is a fury. She is taking vengeance for the death of her daughter. Um, and it seemed to me when you looked at it, having ever been a teenage daughter rather than having never been a bad husband, Clytemnestra yeah. suddenly becomes someone a lot more uh, sympathetic and a lot more interesting. And I kind of, I read her story thinking, yeah, she's, she's still a murderer, but I'm not sure she's not on my side, hey. When did you start to see, it, at what point, because of course your study begins, as we know, from Clash of the Titans. Yes, uh, great studies should. Which I think still stands up. I have to say, yes. uh, I'm a big fan of Ray Harryhausen, but by God, Golden Voyage of Sinbad's boring, despite the presence of uh, Tom Baker. We were great always so gutted one. when that was on on a bank holiday and it wasn't Clash of the Titans or Jason and the Argonauts, because mm. clearly you wanted one or the other. You wanted the clockwork owl, or the you know terrifying skeleton warriors, and that's what we were there for. Let's for be skeleton. completely honest. Who's um, the oh, wine-filled uh, um, metal robot? Oh, Talos! <laughs> <Who's> not. <laughs> yeah, Talos. He lives. I think that he's called that on the um, in the movie. He lives on the Isle, Isle of Bronze, which I think is meant to be Cyprus or Crete. I've forgotten. Um, but it's in Ap it's in Apollonius of Rhodes, anyway. Um, 
and yeah, he's filled, he's filled with ichor, uh, which obviously runs through the veins of the gods instead of blood. Um, but that's uh, the perfect illustration, of course, is that in the movie, they go and get the Golden Fleece, and on the way to getting the Golden Fleece, spoiler, 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 but you have had literally decades to watch this film, um, <laughs> on the way to get the Fleece, they stop off at this place, and Hercules um, spots, you know, this ginormous javelin, and it's made of gold, and he picks it up, and it turns out it's a brooch pin, because they are tiny humans compared with these ginormous um, bronze giants or gods who, who dwell in this island. And so they then have a fight and eventually Hera, um, who is on a black man, sort of intervenes and says, Oi, Jason, go and, you know, see that big peg on his foot, go and, you know, give that a wind and it'll all be all right. And then he collapses and crushes, is it Hylas? I've forgotten now. Um, yes, it is. Uh, and, and, and thus they get to carry on on their adventure. And as a child, of course, I watched that going, wow, Jason's so brave and clever. He's so great that, you know, this lady goddess is completely helping him out. And then as a student, I read Apollonius of Rose. I'm like, wait, who kills the bronze giant? And it's Medea, right? Of course. So it's a perfect illustration of what happens to women in narrative is that it's Medea who kills the um, unsleeping, Aupnos, the unsleeping snake or dragon that guards the golden fleece. Um, obviously in the Harryhausen movie, she dies while Jason is doing it and then has to be revived with the fleece. Um, it's Medea who kills the bronze giant. And she does it in a really creepy way as well. She sort of calls down, they're on the, their ship. They don't, they don't get close enough to, to land because he's hurling rocks at them, I think. Um, and she calls down the power of Hecate, the sort of dark witchcraft goddess. Um, and she, she can just sort of charge herself up and she, she puts the whammy on him. I can't really think of a better way of describing it. He has just this one weak spot on his foot, like an Achilles heel, but in this case, somebody else's heel. Um, and he, it's, it's really upsetting. Even in the Greek, it's upsetting. And he takes the rock that he's about to throw at the Argo and he instead smashes it against the one bit of his body which is weak and that's what kills him. So she doesn't even kill him. She makes him do it to himself. It's really cool, really, you know, proper horror movie, you know, why are you hurting yourself mm -hmm. kind of thing. And she just does it. She is by far the strongest and most impressive person on the Argo, according to Apollonius of Rhodes. But then, you know, fast forward to the 20th century and she's, she's practically furniture in that story. You know, she's beautiful, um, the Medea in the Harryhausen film, but she doesn't get to do very much. It is that furniture thing is really where I, I don't know when for me the transition came where so many uh, um, films uh, are almost unwatchable now because yes. of that you know that which is why all about eve and sunset boulevard to me thrive is because they have such you know characters of of, of energy and it's not you know the yeah and screwball comedy survives really well as well you know what used to be called oh, women's pictures. movies yeah she's so yeah, dominant or, um, in, in like bringing up baby and stuff like that what am i thinking of judy holiday well what's the film i'm thinking of where she won that year didn't she for uh, she won the Oscar over Betty Davis in All About Eve. Oh, um, I feel like I should know this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, everyone. Uh, my memory is only good for ancient things. Um, <laughs> but it's entirely true as well. Um, but there was that, you know, there was a sort of golden age of Hollywood when they made what were called, and I think not even insultingly, women's pictures. And, you know, it's like, and oddly enough, women did stuff in them. <laughs> it's like a thought, isn't it? You see how it relates to the context around it and you see how it comes on the back of, you know, you see how it comes on the back of the 10 years prior to it. And like you see how the 50s was like this 
slamming hand on top of <laughs> on top of it and like it, it's sort of worrying to be like oh this is a reflection of what was going on and what had been going on for 10 years previous in America and in the world and then this happened and it really really just fucked everyone into the wilderness for so long and yeah I find it very um very saddening to see like to see it as like a little island and then the wilderness afterwards like a dark age afterwards and then yeah but that is, I mean, I mean, going back to Clash of the Titans, just because, uh, which is that point of that was was that your way in? Was it watching, yes. you know, that ha- Harry Hamlin and and Medusa yeah. courses in it? Oh and... my god! When I came to write the introduction to the book, I sat here really hopefully, and it was during lockdown because I wrote the introduction absolutely at the end, um, which is the way I always write introductions. So I never know what I'm introducing until I finished it. And I sat here, and I didn't really have anyone to talk to. And I was like, um, okay, I must have read some books about classics. And stuff. That's how these always go. It's like, my parents gave me blah, blah, blah book. And, you know, I sat on blah, 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 beautiful reading seat and blah, blah, blah. Then I, you know, was, my heart was taken by the Greeks and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I've got absolutely, no. I was texting my brother who is busy with his small child um, and therefore doesn't reply particularly quickly for the most part. And I was like, did we have any books about Greek myth as a kid? And he's like, yeah, I think so. Maybe one about Norse. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying really hard. I was like, oh God, it's just Ray Harry. <laughs> That's the whole thing. And I was like, I, I was sort of there. I was like, well, maybe a bit of a bump. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd better not say that either. I'll be in so much trouble. So yeah, in the end, the introduction is basically me going, "This is this was my this was my way in." I wish I had got that you know lovely um, bookish narrative into it, but it's just not true. I, I we must have owned the Puffin Book of Greek Myth, and yet I have no recollection of it. So I can I could memorize huge tracts of, of the Harryhausen movies. I have no recollection of reading any of these stories until I started studying Latin and Greek at school. So yeah, I think we can safely say that whatever the children's versions of the classics were that I had, they didn't stick. It was Roger Lancelin Green, your brother reckoned it was, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. So, yeah. And we didn't have the Nathaniel Hawthorne, I think, although that's still the version of uh, Midas that people always seem to know where he turns his daughter to gold by mistake. So yeah. Hang on, is that nowhere near the official one? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely the version I know. Uh Yeah, it turns out that would be some of your good old-fashioned 19th century misogyny. Happy to help. (laughs) Yeah, in the ancient versions, he turns a twig, an apple, an ear of corn to gold, and then he um, goes to eat and drink, and the the bread and the wine turn to gold in his throat. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he turns to Dionysus and says, please, would you get rid of this power? And he has to travel to a stream and bathe in it and so on and so on but yeah the daughter who just pops in to get killed is a very much later invention i'm not saying there are any narratives in the ancient world where women just pop up in order to die pathetically because there are a few um but yeah this isn't one of them that's that's just a later edition well if you think that it, it takes approximately 24 hours maybe less than that uh, for a story to be entirely misconstrued and turned into whatever uh, the ideological purpose of it is uh, in in the media if you give something you know somewhere between you know well around 4000 years i can see how over that time the number of 24 hour periods of misconstruing a story for ideological purposes there's quite a few aren't there <laughs> yeah i think you know the the existence of media and social media um 
reframing of stories it always i mean i do see there's no way through the center so that going straight into sued's corner but it does always make me think of um farmer rumor in in Aeneid 4, because in book four of Virgil's Aeneid, he talks about how in the light of Dido and Aeneas sort of secretly getting married, Rumour, which is this terrifying monster, um, and he says, there's no evil more swift, which is just the most fantastic description. And she has, oh, I'm gonna get this wrong now. She has an eye, I think under, she has like a hundred eyes um, and each one's sort of hidden under a feather and all these mouths. And so she can talk, she can see everything and tell everything and hear everything so she's this incredible and she moves at sort of super speed this sort of terrifying monster that can move around the world and that idea of the rumor being everywhere while the you know truth is still putting its shoes on it's it, mm-hmm. I, I don't know an earlier version of it than Aeneid 4 but god I think about it depressingly often the rumor than whom there is no more swift evil now you mentioned I, I mentioned uh, Mike Hammer at the beginning and Kiss Me Deadly. I'm glad you mentioned that again. Still in we're still on chapter one there. Uh, which, <laughs> yes, we're just uh, doing the ten book shambles of <laughs> Pandora's jar. Um, Kiss Me Deadly is the Ralph Meeker movie about 1955. It's a really weird because you it use is it bonkers. Yeah. It's completely bonkers because it's a classic Pandora's box narrative. And I use the phrase with extremely high eyebrows, as you know. Um so uh the idea is that we're looking for a, an object that we and we don't know what it is um and it's and this and and you know this is a trope that runs through films so often you know we can see it in pulp fiction where they have the briefcase that we can't we don't know what's inside it we never do find out what's inside it um it reaches its kind of highest form i guess in the twilight zone episode uh, I'm going to say it's called Button Button. The film that's based on it with Cameron Diaz is called The Box. I think. See, I knew nothing about this film, and I'm I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan. It's not great. Fan, it's fine. I think what? it's a um, it's a it's a mid '80s Twilight Zone, not a classic Rod Serling Twilight Zone, but it is Richard Matheson, as you said. It is, yeah. But it was it was the last film made by uh, Josie. It was made by Richard Kelly, who made Donnie Darko. Wow. Uh, who had has such a strange career. But yeah, that was a again, that, that was another exciting moment of uh, of, of cross culture stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a, a really strange pop. thing. So the it's a couple who are living well, let's do the Twilight Zone episodes. It's a couple who are living in, in sort of fi- some financial difficulties, and a stranger comes to their door and he offers them a box or just gives it to them, a small box which you can open and it hasn't got anything inside it, and there's a button on top. And he says to them, if you press the button, you'll get, I think it's $200,000, but someone you don't know will die. And then he goes away and he says, I'll come and collect it in a couple of days. And they have, it it was really well done. You know, I often find the Twilight Zone's a bit heavy handed, but it's really well done. They sort of debate. It's like, well, you know, but if someone we don't know and you don't, you really don't. I mean, it's a philosophically excellent argument. We don't value the lives of people we don't know as highly as we value the lives of people we do know. Obviously, that's how we manage to watch the news without bursting into tears every single day. Um, and it's like, well, it could be somebody who's got their whole life ahead of them, but it could be somebody who's terminally ill. It could be this. It could be that. It could be, you know, somebody who's got this terrible life of, you know, sort of drudgery and we'd be saving them. And they try and talk themselves into it and they try and talk themselves out of it. And then eventually it becomes too much for her and she presses the button um and uh and he's angry with her but they can't see you know any kind of it's not like they're giving someone an electric shock it seems all fine the 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 issue sort of disappears but then when the guy comes to collect it what's his name mr stewart i think um he comes to collect the box from them um and he says uh 
that the box will now be reprogrammed and given to someone they don't know. And at that point, of course, we realise that the next person will be able to decide the fate of, of the woman in this couple because they will, she will be someone they, that, that that person doesn't know. Um, and I think there is something, it's, it's one of those Twilight Zones which really works because you sort of think there is something so innate, so true, that when we see a thing that we're not allowed to do, we want to do it. And the idea of pushing a button, it's so hard not to. You know, you could see people, even when they're trying not to make physical contact with things, they're still really struggling not to push buttons at traffic lights and things like that. You're like, oh, push the thing, push the thing. Um, oh, God, I haven't even been thinking that I'm still pressing the buttons at traffic lights. I'm sorry. <laughs> you must. I'm so sorry. Touching. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you had borderline OCD, it would all be fine. Regardless of the moral quandary, I'd just be like, a button? Brilliant. Yeah, yeah I know. It is really yeah, hard. I thought about it. My particular failing is um, those little sachets of silica gel. And normally Whoa. I'm so, oh, my God, don't write, do not eat on it. It's all I can think about doing. Yeah. I didn't even want to eat it. And now. I didn't want to eat it. And now you've marketed it as a sweet. What are you doing? So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but in Kiss Me Deadly, sorry, Robin, um, it's a, a, a missing box narrative again. You know, Mike Hammer's driving down the road and he picks up this hitchhiker and she's panicking and stressed and, and she's on the run from an asylum. And then, you know, they don't survive the journey. It's an incredibly twisty film noir, so I'm not going to give away any more of the plot uh, than I can help. And you should immediately stop listening if you don't want to know what the MacGuffin is for at least the next, you know, two minutes. Um, but eventually when he finds, it's a kind of Pandora's box within a Pandora's box and he tracks all the way to a country club, uh, a fancy country club in LA. And then he, it's inside a locker and then he opens the locker and there's a box and the box is glowing. And we're like, wait, what is, I thought this was film noir. What is in the box? And you know, you, you think it must be something supernatural, but of course it reflects its time, doesn't it? And it's something radioactive. And so his, uh, his lifespan is much depleted, I think, uh, much like uranium. Um, by by pursuing the box in the face of all sense and reason, but we can't help ourselves. Yeah, yeah it's a really great cult movie. I would highly recommend. And, and it's yeah. and the way you describe. I mean, that's one of the things about those kind of Mike Hammer novels is that there there's very it it it's sparse. And yeah. it brings really to the to, you know chapter two. You talk about Jocasta and and Oedipus. I I mean, my introduction to Oedipus really uh, fortunately is through film, not through psychology or my own experience. <laughs> and uh, but it's you know Angel Heart or William Hortzberg Fallen yes. Angel, where where you kind of you know alas Johnny, how terrible is wisdom when it brings no profit to the wise? Uh, yeah. And the the pricey by Louis Cipher. Yes. Louis Cipher. Who could Who he could be, Robert De Niro? Louis <laughs> Cipher. But. The way you describe the the the, the story of, of Oedipus Jocasta, I mean, it, there, there's no fat on that story, is there? In, no, the, the, not in the Sophocles just... version. It's absolutely relentless. It's it is like being. I always say this to audiences. It's like being punched in the face over and over again for ninety minutes, but in a good way, because it's just one revelation after another, and you're still reeling from one when you just get knocked back the other way. And what's interesting about it is what what's the you know we we were talking about the kind of proper version of uh, Midas um, a few minutes ago. And, and then the notion that there isn't a proper version of a story, it's, it's never really more obvious, I think, than in the Jocasta Oedipus story, because it's really difficult to work out what's integral to their story and what isn't. In the, in the earliest version of it we have, which is Homer in book 11 of the Odyssey, um, she's called Epicast. And 
they uh, unknowingly mother and son get married it's only 10 lines um and then it's it's found out that they've committed this terrible crime and then she rushes down to hades i.e she kills herself and he stays on ruling thebes and even that's a change, you know, because the version that we know best, the Sophocles version, obviously he's banished. Where's the mention of him putting his own eyes out? That's the bit that we all kind of focus on. Uh, um, and therefore, you know, that bit that bit is missing and she's changed her name and so on. Um, when Euripides takes on the story in the Phoenician women, um, at the end, at the revelation moment where we find out that Jocasta and Oedipus are both um, mother and son as well as wife and husband, uh, then instead of her killing herself and him being banished or her killing herself and him staying on as king, he is locked up in the palace by his sons who are ashamed of him. And she carries on in this sort of high diplomatic role. So she stays she stays in control. And so, you know, there are some versions of their story where they get married and it's immediately discovered that they are mother and son. And there are lots of versions where they have time to have four children before this crime is uncovered. And so it's really difficult to get a bead on who Jocasta is, not least because in the most famous version of the story um, in the Sophocles, she gets 120 lines, which is about 8% of the dialogue in the play. And so you end up turning to things like the Euripides version, the Foinisai, um, or there's a, a huge chunk of about 70, 80 lines, I think, of... Uh, of her dialogue in what's called the Leal Stesichorus, which is the most extraordinary find from the 1970s, um, in which Egyptologists were, I was gonna say looting, and that's a little bit judgmental, isn't it, if accurate. Let's say removing um, items from Egypt and taking them to uh, countries in Western Europe. Uh, obviously, we think of Howard Carter doing this, but it's not just Howard Carter. There are also French Egyptologists with an absolute mania for taking objects out of Egypt and uh, and putting them in their newly built, at the time, um, Institute of Egyptology in Lille. And uh, the Lille Stesichorus was um, cartonnage, so the packing material around a mummy that was brought out of Egypt at the start of the 20th century. And then it's the perfect illustration of what happens to Jocasta over and over again. The, the packing material sits there in plain sight while everybody is looking at the mummy for 70 years. And then somebody notices something's written on it and it seems to be in Greek. And it turns out to be this lost chunk of, of, the, of Stesichorus's version of, of Jocasta. So, I mean, just the perfect illustration for, for what Jocasta is. She's hiding in plain sight, but we just don't notice it. Yeah, I know. That's just, it's so thrilling that that is. I know. That happens. I, know. I can't believe it. It's, you wouldn't write it better. I like, know. How could, oh my gosh. It's just miraculous, isn't it? I mean, yeah. there is literally no single uncontested image of Jocasta in visual arts from the ancient world at all. There's only one, I think, contested image um, of her. Um, and the moral of this story is obviously don't be a woman over 35. No one wants to see that. Oh, no! I know. It's <laughs> such a disappointment to us all. I've let Why everyone die. Why when I was 31? <laughs> I could have died young. <laughs> um, so, uh, unfortunately for everyone, no visual images of her at all. And then, you know, when we get later images of her, we get the most incredible, you know, painting titles where it's like Oedipus mourns the corpses of his wife and sons. It's like... God, just because he's in the scene doesn't mean no one else has got a name. <laughs> mad. And so, you know, there's something absolutely spectacularly appropriate about this version of Jocasta 
which is so important to our understanding of her just hiding there in plain sight for 70 years while Egyptologists looked very carefully at something else. Because the Hollywood version was it was it was uh, Brad Pitt as Oedipus, wasn't it? And Angela Lansbury as Jacasta, which I'm was, uh, kind of, yeah, the uh, quite a, a weird. Um, there is. Uh, I would love that film. Yeah, no, so, so would I. Incredible. Yeah. Are you kidding? Uh, these are the kind of films I try and make. And you know what? <laughs> Hollywood shuts the door on Worst me yet part. again. Yes. Narrative, and instead they make Back to the Future, Robin. I just don't understand it. Still, what I don't get about the Oedipus story, though, is the fact that, right, so they go, oh, well, there were a bunch of bandits. They killed a person at a kind of three-way, you know, branching of, of, of a road. And Oedipus goes, yes. well, that can't have been me, you know. I mean, there was this one guy I killed at a three-way branching of a road, but it's high. And from that point onwards, he should have paid more attention to the advice he was being given, I think, about the investigation. Yeah, I mean, over and over again in that play, it is genuinely, it, everything moves so fast that it manages to operate in this kind of dual timeline where you're like, hurry up! And also, how have you not seen this? But also, it feels like you're being pummeled because it's just one revelation after another. And so it's so brilliantly structured that you get him saying, well, you know, I was told that I would kill my father and marry my mother, and so I avoided them. And Jocasta saying, well, we were told that our son would kill Lias and marry me, and so that definitely hasn't happened. And you're like, guys, guys! Guys, and there's even a moment. I mean, it's it's it takes you so close to the edge. I always think when you see a modern production of it, they're going to cut it, and you have to work really hard to keep it in. There's a moment where he says, "Tell me what Lias was like," and Jocasta says, "Oh, he looked a bit like you, but he had kind of grayer hair here." And you're like, "Guys, come on!" But it just moves so quickly and so relentlessly, and you know they're so convinced by the by the sort of accuracy of the oracle and, and the accuracy of the reports they've heard. So it's like, well, I was told I was going to kill my father, but my father is Polybus and he's in Corinth and he's just died, so I definitely didn't kill him. And we were told that Lias was going to be killed by his son, but he was killed by bandits and our son is long dead and was killed as a baby. So that definitely didn't happen either. So oracles are nonsense, so let's not worry about it. And it's like, it, it, it does seem, it, you know, it, it works in the context. Jocasta, what attracted you to your second husband? He looked very much like my first husband, but much younger. Yes. All right, okay. That could be genetics. I mean, to be fair, oh, we've yeah. seen it play out. Yep. Usually the other way around, but we've seen it play out. And um, what's funny about that is talking about it, it, I've never before felt that it was so like, well, of course this is how people would behave. Do, do you know what I mean? I've always seen it as something that was quite like, uh, like wild fiction. Yeah, now... it's a very other story, isn't it? A very alien story. Of but course, it's not really. I think. Yeah, it's about people believing the wrong things and jumping to conclusions and acting badly, and you know, all of these things feel so, just like, oh yeah, of course, this is exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the things which replay the Oedipus storyline. I do the same as you, Robin. I think Angel Heart is a great case in point because it's the person you're looking for is actually you all along. But it's it's very rarely the um, mother-son relationship that we see echoed in a modern narrative. It's almost always the, um, I'm looking for something, but I am it. Or um, my personal favourite version um, is the first three seasons arc of Stringer Bell in The Wire, where he is desperate to avoid the fate that he's been given, which is, frankly, to die probably around the age of 20 um, on the corner in Baltimore as a drug dealer. And he is determined that it won't happen to him. And he is so determined that he, you know, rises up to this position of being, you know, in control of these much younger 
young men who are dealing drugs. So he has more power. And it's like, well, he's still this kind of drug kingpin. He's still in danger. You know, his long term colleague is in jail. So it still seems risky. And he obviously feels the same way. And so he starts going to, oh, God, it just kills me. And so he starts going to business school to kind of become respectable. And this is the moment at which he sort of sees his fate full on and says, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do the other thing. And so he goes to business school and gets his qualification. And it's when he starts to try and become respectable and he starts trying to deal in property with a, I can't remember if he's a congressman or a Senate because my knowledge of US politics is shoddy. So sorry, America. Um, but uh, it's at that point that he gets stitched up. It's the point where he's trying to be not himself, where he's trying to operate in the sort of upper world of respectability instead of the underworld where he's a total you know, ruler. And that's where he comes unstuck. And it is so devastating that it's that, you know, it's, it's, it's in that third series. It's that which fatally weakens him so that he can be uncut by the life that he came from. And I think that's the perfect Oedipus story arc. Well, this is we, we, we've pretty much run out of time and we haven't. Uh, the Medusa chapter is uh, uh, fantastic. And, uh, and there's lots of um, again, it, cha it changes. It changes. You know, I'm not as much on Harry Hamlin's side now. I'm glad uh, to hear that because I know. feel very strongly that we shouldn't be. I feel she is, as you know, an extremely wronged woman. Oh. I feel like Harry Hamlin goes to pick a fight with her for no really good reason. Mate, I think that's he's the story been misled. Being a woman. Like, just absolutely. <laughs> I know, right? She gets sexually assaulted and then literally monstered. Oh, wait, could I have heard this somewhere before? <laughs> well, that's but the thing as so... well, which is. Sorry. No, it's just, it's so wonderful to have you here kind of making these things better and more nuanced and show, showing how much bigger and like more real it, it all is. Like, it's really, um, like, and as as a woman it's really thrilling to be like thank Good. you thank I'm you very glad. much <laughs> i'm really glad because i think it does it makes me feel better when you can look at these stories and be like wait a second <laughs> no hang on a minute i find it in genuinely really life enhancing it's like oh no wait this thing that we're seeing play out which i find so difficult to see play out in reality has been playing out in stories for thousands of years. So that's why there's this sense that it has to be this way. That's why, you know, I, it makes me a lot less despairing of human nature. I've stopped thinking, why don't people believe women and started thinking, why do we have these templates in our lives? And once we recognize them, is it better to, to have them in our, in our heads and hearts and minds when we're thinking about these things? Yes, surely is the answer. Well, we, we didn't get to talk about Beyonce and, and Medea and- uh, I'm sorry, another and time. And I do, I wish I could remember which chapter. It's not in the chapter about uh, Jocasta and Oedipus, but you have a lovely line, which I will now misquote, where it goes, uh, I am confident that Freud will not be helpful at this point. Yeah, there's a uh, lot, of, there's a lot yeah. of moments where I'm confident that Freud won't help. Yeah. I mean, bless his heart, he thinks that the decapitation of Medusa is about male fear of castration. It's like, dude, it's literally the woman being castrated. The snakish hair, if you're looking for anything in, you know, art or <laughs> archetypes, is probably most like pubic hair for women rather than for men, which is, you know, who are very rarely shown in that way. I get that you have the snake thing and I know you care about that, but honestly, you're going to be astonished how much it might be about women. <laughs> it's, a, it's literally about the fear of the female gaze, mate. I can't make this clearer to you. But yes, <laughs> poor old Freud, he doesn't get a very good time from me. If you're yeah, a big fan of Freud or Robert Graves or Nathaniel Hawthorne or a handful of other <clears throat> men, then this is not the book for you. I'm not going to lie. 
So Pandora's jar is out. We never got, also. I, I loved your. You, you were telling me a while ago, but I forget which writer it is who wrote a book explaining that uh, Plato's uh, desire for the the, the perfect uh, was because he himself was short sighted and therefore never saw anything in. Yeah, uh, I think that's vision. right. It's he lovely. was living in a cave all along. He was living in a cave because he hadn't got specs. Isn't that just the worst? And then Aristotle, who obviously is his sort of student and successor, intellectual successor at the very least, um, had incredible eyesight. So. So, yeah, that's how philosophy moves. Who was it who wrote class, that book? So. I can't remember. You told me about her. She's uh, oh, she... Aristotle's Way by Edith Hall is just that's wonderful. It. It's absolutely wonderful. I can't recommend it enough. You don't have to buy my book. You can buy Edith's instead. <laughs> oh, just buy both. And I'll tell you what, there might be a third one. You can get three on an offer or something like that there in, it is. In, in a chain store. Who knows? Oh, so you can hear Edith talking about Aristotle. If you don't have the money for buying a book at the moment and you're um, not keen on going to a library, you can hear Edith and Adam Rutherford talking about Aristotle on um, the Aristotle episode of Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, which was repeated uh, a couple of weeks ago and therefore is up on BBC Sounds and will be for the foreseeable. Yay! Free Thanks. stuff! <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, we will thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton as usual thank you very much for everyone who supports us uh, via Patreon uh, if you are supporting us via Patreon you may well be listening to the, the full length version of this uh, if you're not supporting us via Patreon then you'll be missing out on some very exciting tangents uh, that didn't make <laughs> available to Patreon supporters um, thank you very much bye bye thank thanks for having me Thanks very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreons. Patreon.com slash bookshandles is where you can go to pledge your support and get extra goodies like extended episodes and all that sort of jazz and find out about some very exciting stuff ahead of everyone else very soon. Don't forget to like, subscribe, uh, rate five stars, leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it's called now. We'll be back next week with another new episode. We will be joined then by someone who was mentioned in this episode. Robin and Josie will be chatting to Laura Bates about her new book. So make sure you listen to that. There'll be a new science book shambles before then as well with, I believe, Joe Marchant and Stuart Clark on that episode. Might not be, but I'm pretty sure that's who it is. Don't forget the Sunday Science Shambles Q&A's live at 3pm. Cosmicshambles.com for everything else. Have a great week, stay safe, and we will see you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.